1: From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. It's time for our Year in Review show. 2016 was a horrible year. Just in case you've forgotten, Amy Willens is here to help us remember. And later in the show, we'll turn to the legendary trial lawyer Marty Garbus to talk about clemency for Leonard Peltier, the Native American activist who's been in prison for 40 years. First up... Could the Republicans be right when they say that taxes on business hurt the economy and low wages help? Let's ask Robert Reich. He's a former Secretary of Labor. He teaches at Berkeley, where he's Chancellor's Professor of Public Policy. He's written 14 books, including the bestsellers Aftershock, The Work of Nations, and Beyond Outrage. And his most recent book, just out now, is Saving Capitalism for the Many, Not the Few. He is co-creator of the award-winning documentary, Inequality for All, and he's a contributor to The Nation. We reached him today in Berkeley. Robert Reich, welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much. Good to be here. Well, today we have a crucial question for you. How bad are taxes for business? Conservative economists say... Business thrives in states where taxes are low and where wages are low and where there's little regulation of business. Are they right? Uh,
2: They're wrong. Uh, We've done a little bit of an experiment in the United States, Uh, not an official experiment, but uh, it turns out that California has among the highest taxes in the country, particularly on the wealthy and on businesses, Uh, It also has a lot of regulations, particularly with regard to the environment, uh, the highest regulations of any state. And at the other end of the spectrum, you've got states like Kansas and and Texas that have among the lowest taxes and the least uh, and most minimum regulations. Uh, So according to conservative doctrine, you would expect that California would be doing terribly given the high taxes and high regulations, uh, and that Kansas and Texas would be doing fabulously well uh, in terms of their businesses.
1: So we have an experiment. You call it the Great State Experiment. And how did the experiment work out so far?
2: Well, it's interesting. It, it, it worked out in exactly the opposite way that conservatives would have supposed. Uh, in fact, uh, for years now, Kansas's rate of economic growth has been the worst in the nation. Uh, Last year, its economy actually shrank. And Texas hasn't been doing all that much better. Its rate of job growth has been uh, below the national average. Retail sales in Texas are way down. Uh, The value of Texas exports has been dropping. Uh, But then if you look at so-called overtaxed, overregulated California, you find that California has actually led the nation. And it is leading the nation in the rate of economic growth, uh, more than twice the national average. In other words, conservatives have it backwards. California businesses are leading the way. I mean, if you look at the high-tech sector, you look at entertainment, you look at the leading businesses in America, they are in California.
1: You know, we record this in Los Angeles, and there, there's been genuine deindustrialization in Southern California. We lost our auto industry, we lost our our rubber industry, we lost our aerospace industry since the 80s. Why hasn't that led to the kind of Kansas effect?
2: Uh, well, because uh, high tech and entertainment and venture capital, the kind of industries of the future, uh, have all migrated to California. They are uh dependent on uh, investments investments in people investments in education uh investments in infrastructure i mean at california Uh, although it certainly has problems Uh, you know I live in California the roads are clogged the K through 12 education system certainly leaves a lot to be desired nevertheless because of the investments that California has made in education and infrastructure and also in protecting the beauty of the state uh, environmental protection this is the place that uh, the up-and-coming business pioneers Uh, The high-tech industry, the entertainment industry, venture capital, uh, this is where they all want to be.
1: Wages are also high in California. Is that because of the laws?
2: No, wages are high in California because the economy is growing so fast that employers have to pay more for workers. Uh, now, again, I don't want to overstate the case. We still have a lot of inequality. In fact, inequality is rampant in California, a lot of low-wage workers. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that among the highest workers, highest paid workers in America, you have high-tech workers in California, entertainment workers in California, venture capital workers in California. Uh, you've got uh, really uh, more and, and a larger percentage of the population in California is well paid above the median wage uh, than anywhere in the nation. The California economy is not only bursting at the seams, but California itself is bursting at the seams. I mean, California is the kind of place where talented people all over the world want to come.
1: California also has very high wealth inequality. It has some of the richest people and many of the poorest people. But the striking thing, which I've never quite been able to figure out about this, is the billionaires in California are mostly, or many of them are liberals, fund the Democrats, fund the environmental movement, where the billionaires of Texas are the far right wing. Can you explain that?
2: Well, again, it has to do, I think, with the kind of people who are attracted to these states. Uh, California attracts people who have a much broader sense of their public responsibilities, their understanding of what we owe one another as members of the same society, they are liberal in the sense that they support not just support democrats, they support uh, public charities. They 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 are extraordinarily generous uh, with their dollars. They are willing to support high taxes uh, and uh, and willing to actually lobby for high taxes for education. Uh, Texas, one must assume, attracts a very different kind of wealthy person. Uh, these are people who, many of them are in the oil business. Uh, they are extractors from the ground. Uh, now I'm not saying they're any less innovative, but they're less innovative in the sense that they are, they're not doing as, as many uh, imaginative things. They're not coming up with brand new inventions, new ideas, the kind of innovations that are, are things that have never been heard of in in, in before. Uh, the Texas elite, in terms of financial elite, is very much dependent on an extractive industry that's an old extractive industry called
1: oil. And there's one more big difference between California and Texas. California voted Democratic a couple of months ago, almost two to one. There's hardly any Republicans left in power in California. Texas, of course, voted for Trump over Clinton. I think it was 53 to 43. Is there a connection between these rates of different rates of economic growth and opposition to Trump?
2: Well, I think the real connection is in attitudes toward public investment attitudes toward uh, whether we're all in the same boat together or not. In California, uh, public investment, that is paying higher taxes in order to support education and public education, uh, particularly public higher education. I wish K-12 schools were better in California. That's a legacy, unfortunately, of a proposition that occurred in the late uh, 1970s uh, that still is... Uh, choking uh, the California K through 12 school system, but but the real legacy, and I think what a lot of very wealthy people in california believe in fundamentally is education they believe in the environment they think the environment is important uh... in and in of its own uh, they believe in public investments in infrastructure uh... and these are the kind of people who tend to vote democratic they voted for hillary clinton uh... they did not vote for donald trump because donald trump is not an environmentalist to say the least in fact quite the opposite he says he doesn't even believe that humans cause uh, that causes climate, human beings cause climate change. Uh, Donald Trump, uh, has talked about big infrastructure projects, uh, but Donald Trump is actually spending his life. Uh, getting tax breaks and uh, reducing his tax liability and finding ways to uh, get uh, basically benefits from the government in terms of tax subsidies and eminent domain Uh, I mean Donald Trump and anybody who supports Donald Trump is likely now I'm not saying obviously every Donald Trump supporter but if you're very wealthy and you support Donald Trump uh, you have a very different idea about the role of government uh, then somebody who is very wealthy and, uh, and perhaps lives in California and supported Hillary Clinton. Uh, you see government, if you are a Trump supporter and very wealthy, as a constraint on your own ability to generate wealth, and you really probably believe in trickle-down economics, the, the fallacy that if you make, make a lot of people very wealthy, uh, that wealth will inevitably trickle down to everybody else. It doesn't work. It's a hoax. Uh, And I think uh, wealthy people in California understand that intuitively.
1: One more question. Andy Pudzer. He's Trump's pick for your old job, Secretary of Labor. Uh, He's the guy who's chief executive of Carl's Jr. I don't think he's from California. What do you think of Andy Pudzer?
3: Well, I, I, I'm hard pressed. I
2: don't know him personally, but, but given his record as being uh, not only anti-labor union, but also doesn't want to raise the minimum wage, the federal minimum wage, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't, he's against the overtime provisions that uh, Obama has expanded. Uh, he doesn't like labor laws generally. Uh, well, given all of that, I, I, I can't imagine why he would be selected as Secretary of Labor in terms of advancing the agenda of the department I once headed. The agenda that says working people matter, that advocates on behalf of working people. He uh, he, he has been a believer in an anti-working person agenda and uh, I, I can't imagine a worse candidate for Labor Secretary.
1: Robert Rice, you can watch his wonderful video about business and taxes at TheNation.com. Robert Rice, thanks for talking with us today.
2: Well, thank you very much. Take care.
1: Now it's time for our Year in Review segment. 2016 was such a horrible year. And just in case you've forgotten, we turn to Amy Willens to remind us. She's a frequent guest here and a longtime contributor at The Nation. She's also the former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker. She's written for The New York Times, The Washington Post, Politico, and lots more. She won the National Book Critics Circle Award for her most recent book about Haiti. It's called... Farewell Fred Voodoo, and she also teaches in the Literary Journalism Program at UC Irvine. Hi, Amy. Hi, John. Well, obviously, the worst night of 2016 was election night, but there were some other memorable worst moments of 2016. What's on your list?
0: Well, one of the things on my list is, I would have to say, that stunning moment at the Republican convention when he said, when he won the nomination and he said, I alone can fix it. And I thought to myself, great speechwriter, bad thought. <laughs> oh, because any, any executive who thinks that he alone can fix it is uh, on the very precipice of what we all suspect Trump is on the very precipice of, which is kind of a dictatorship mentality at the very least. So that was one of mine. Any others? Well, then, since he um, won the presidency—hard to say that, isn't it? Since he won the presidency, he said, you know, more rationally than he had been speaking before, that he would not go after Hillary and wouldn't really, you know, try to put her in prison because he didn't, like, he didn't say it, but he didn't really mean that. But then he went out on his victory tour, as he loves to go back in front of the crowd, and he lets the uh, people in the crowd say, lock her up, just the way they said before— Uh, without even um, telling them he's not gonna. Mm. So which is it? And, And it's just another example of grotesque pandering to crowd mentality.
1: For me, the worst moment came when Trump finally admitted he was wrong about Obama being born in Kenya. I mean, this should have been a good moment. In September, he said, quote, President Barack Obama was born in the United States period, close quote, but he didn't leave it there. The next day, he said, quote, Hillary Clinton and her campaign of 2008 started the birther controversy, close quote. It's like a five-year-old saying, but she started it. Uh, And of course, factcheck.org, the Washington Post fact checkers, have debunked this claim many times. It's true that in 2008, there were a few Hillary supporters who raised this as a possibility, but they had no ties to either Hillary herself or anyone on her staff, so it was just one of the one of the horrible moments on on my list.
0: Revelatory moments yeah. about the personality of this person,
1: but but it's wrong for our year in review to talk only about the horrible things. There were a lot of good things that happened in two thousand sixteen especially right after the election. Uh, for example, we record this show in L.A. Right after the election, uh, the L.A. police chief, Charlie Beck, uh, reiterated that L.A. was a sanctuary city. L.A. I think has more undocumented people than any city in the United States. The L.A. police will refuse to aid Immigration and Customs Enforcement or the Border Patrol in arresting or detaining people based on their immigration status. And that's not because... Charlie Beck is a left-wing militant. It's just because he's a good cop. He needs everyone in L.A. to help enforce the law, catch bad guys, testify in criminal trials. And he knows it can only damage the social fabric of L.A. if the police get involved in enforcing Trump's immigration policy. That was a great thing, I thought. I know that there's some good things on your list, too.
0: Well, close to home for me, uh, I work for the University of California system. And uh, UC has declared um, its universities to be sanctuary spaces also because there are so many what are called dreamers, that is undocumented students, on those campuses studying and trying to get their degrees and better themselves. And uh, we've said simply, we're not going after them. They're staying here. We're protecting them. And I think that's a really big moment, too. Of course, both of the things you and I are talking about are happening in a state that went for Hillary.
1: Yeah, but California is big. Over 10% of the entire population of the United States lives in California. California also has the sixth biggest economy, not in the United States, the sixth biggest economy in the world. And I would point out one other thing about the University of California. The president of the University of California, who has taken the lead in defending the Dreamers from Trump, Janet Napolitano herself, was head of Homeland Security a couple of years ago. So she knows a lot about how Homeland Security operates. She invoked that experience of hers in making her statement, and that makes it a lot more authoritative than if you or I say it. You know, there's a lot of other things that have been happening here in L.A. The city of L.A. is creating a $10 million legal defense fund for immigrants facing deportation. The city council and the county board of supervisors have committed money from the general fund and are going to raise money from private foundations to provide legal uh, defense for undocumented people. It's well known that people who have lawyers are something like eight times more likely to be able to stay in the United States than people who don't have lawyers. I just
0: want to add that our government is doing that here in L.A., not because they're nice guys, but because we need those people here. It doesn't profit us to spend money getting rid of them, and actually it's better for us to spend money to try to keep them here because they're an integral part of the life of the city
1: and of course there are right-wing pro-Trump legal groups that are going to challenge this in court and say that it's a misuse of public tax funds but but providing legal ass- assistance to poor people has long been a practice it used to be the federal government supported legal services for poor people there's it's it's a legitimate and longstanding practice of, of government, and there's nothing wrong with it, and we're going to do it here in L.A. The state of California has done some other great things that should be noted when we're looking at what are the good things that happened since Trump was elected. The, the first day the California state legislature met after the election, a bill was introduced to bar any state or local resources to be used not only uh, for deporting undocumented people— but all government agencies in California will be prohibited from cooperating with the establishment of a Muslim registry. But uh, It's hard
0: to believe that you have to actually state that. It's so sad.
1: And the state also wants to train a public defenders in how to, how to represent undocumented people in, in court, something apparently public defenders aren't especially good at. California state legislature is going to do that. So there's going to be no counties in California where the um, authorities will cooperate either with the establishment of a Muslim registry or with uh, prosecuting uh, undocumented people. It's a lot of of people in California that that's that's going to affect.
0: And this is kind of a proto-secessionist move. I mean, it is definitely a state exempting itself from federal controls in a very public and uh legalistic manner.
1: Yeah, and uh
0: you know, we'll be And other states will do the same, I'm sure.
1: Other states, New York, New York City in particular is all uh, is taking similar steps. The to, governor
0: made a statement.
1: The governor of New York has also made a statement. We'll see if the New York legislature is, which is not as left-wing as the California legislature The California legislature has a supermajority of Democrats, so they are definitely going to be defiant. And I imagine the biggest battle in the year to come is going to be between the state of California...
0: And the United States of America. And
1: the United States of America. And, you know, bring it on is kind of the attitude in Sacramento right now. Any last thoughts about the high points and the low points of 2016?
0: Well, you know, because I'm such a cheerful optimist and a positive thinker and, like you, a Pollyanna, (laughs) I try to see the silver lining. (laughs) This time it's a little hard. Mm. Um, And I think that we have to say it's pretty much an unqualified disaster for the country that this man was elected president. You see his appointments. You can't take any pleasure. But maybe you can say to yourself, and I can say this to myself, that it concentrates the mind and it makes you see what is of value to you and uh, what you're willing to go out on a limb for, things that you didn't think you had to protect, perhaps, before this happened. So, in a way, if (laughs) we can keep it to four years, survive four years, and if the climate of the globe doesn't make every wish for uh, progress of humanity ridiculous and impossible... Trump can be stopped from destroying the climate of the earth, then uh, maybe in four years, we'll be able to reverse this and go forward more strongly as as, as uh, people who support progressive change.
1: Amy Willens, with our Year in Review. Amy, thanks for coming in today.
0: Thank you, John. Now
1: it's time to talk about clemency for Leonard Peltier. He's the Native American activist who was convicted, we believe wrongly, of the murder of two FBI agents in 1975. Now he's 71 years old. He served 41 years in prison, six of them in solitary confinement. He's sick with diabetes. He suffered a stroke. He was recently diagnosed with an aortic aneurysm but he has no option for parole until 2024. That means he'll almost certainly die behind bars unless President Obama, the one person with the power to commute his sentence, grants Leonard Peltier the chance to live his last years in freedom. And now the legendary trial lawyer Martin Garbust, has asked Obama to do just that. Garbus has filed a petition for clemency and an application for compassionate release on Peltier's behalf. Marty Garbus is one of the country's leading trial lawyers. He's appeared before the Supreme Court, as well as trial and appellate courts in over 100 cases. He's also an award-winning writer, the author of six books. His articles have appeared in The New York Times, The Washington Post, The New York Review, Harper's, and, of course, The Nation. We reach him today in New York City, Marty Garbus, welcome to the program.
3: Hi, thank you for having me.
1: You have said Leonard Pelletier was wrongfully convicted. We believe there was a miscarriage yes. of justice in this case. What exactly yes. was the miscarriage of justice?
3: There were three people charged, basically, with these murders. Two of the people went on trial and, and were acquitted. Leonard was tried separately. And what the government managed to do was to get the case away from the judge who had sat on the two cases that were acquitted. That judge, without going into great detail, made all kinds of decisions that were favorable to the defendants. I mean, he made also all kinds of decisions that were hostile to the defendants. But in certain areas, he felt that the defendant's claim a violation of the Constitutional Rights was accurate, and he kept in this evidence or kept out that evidence. The cases should have gone back to him for trial. Instead, the government manipulated it so that it went to a different judge, a known hanging judge. There was no chance of getting him off. The government initially had ballistics, which said that the, gun, that the bullets that entered the two FBI men, Coler and Williams, came from Leonard's gun. And basically, he was convicted on that basis. Subsequently, it turned out that the ballistics were wrong and that information was withheld by the government which would have shown that ballistics were wrong. So Judge Healy and other judges who reviewed the case have all pointed out the difficulties of the ballistic proof. So in a normal case, if it didn't have all the politics that this case has, there'd be reversal. And also, I don't know, I've been practicing law for a long time now, I don't know of any case where a federal judge who has sat on a case writes a letter to at which the government ultimately sees, saying, "Yes, this guy's been convicted. I know what the evidence is. He should be released."
1: Well, why why has Leonard Peltier been in prison for forty one years?
3: Well, once there is a conviction, it's very difficult to get someone out, generally. But in this case, it's an unusual case, because the allegations and what he was convicted on were the killing of two FBI men. And the FBI in this country is a very powerful opposition force. And right before Clinton stepped down, there was word that Clinton might grant clemency. There was an application then. One of my friends, Ramsey Clark, was involved in it. And there was reason to believe that Clinton was going to grant clemency. There was a letter from Judge Healy, a very respected federal judge, who uh, believed that Leonard should be released. And that letter was sent on to Bill Clinton. And there was a very strong campaign before Bill Clinton. And you would think that he would have a predisposition at this time to let someone like uh, Leonard out. What then happened was the FBI formed an opposition group, and they did a number of things. First of all, they barraged the president with letters. But more significantly, 500 FBI men picketed or assembled outside the White House. Wow. And they were, they were armed. So you had a site of 500 armed men outside the White House against the granting of this clemency. I can't think in other clemency proceedings, even when there was opposition, when you ever saw anything like that. So one of the things that Clinton did in that batch of clemencies was to give it to Mark Rich, which some of you remember, was an extraordinarily corrupt individual, jailed, who may have been involved uh, with the Clintons also. So what the public saw was Mark Rich granted, Leonard Peltier denied. Even today, There's a very formidable SBI association. There's one particular guy who speaks on their behalf. And any time I or anybody else is involved in the clemency application or talking about it, uh, he is sure to follow with a barrage either against someone like you who's doing this or just another public barrage over the Internet and mails, et cetera. His name is Ed Wood, and uh, he, he sends out. Pages and pages of stuff. But as I say, no one else in the FBI is doing this. Whether you would have a, a group outside President Obama's White House, I don't know. But I think there's a fear of it. I presume the White House will sound that out before it does anything. Uh, there are negotiations going on now between us and representatives of the White House. But as you can imagine, The White House has its own issues and problems, uh, aside from Leonard Peltier. Now, we have spoken to a lot of senators and a lot of members of the House of Representatives. Those people that we have spoken to have been very sympathetic and would ask for clemency on his behalf. But meanwhile, there's so much other noise that it's hard to get attention. And also, given the politics of this, to at this point in time, perhaps, to release a man convicted, wrongfully convicted, of shooting two FBI men might be very difficult, or if President Obama might feel it's very difficult. Now he certainly has shown himself sympathetic to the demonstrators at Standing Rock. Now most many demonstrators at Standing Rock had posters uh, about Leonard Peltier. Yeah. And there was some chanting going on at Standing Rock for Leonard Peltier. Uh, and, and Obama was sympathetic for that, that demonstration. That, that's, I think one has to word that more carefully, but he was certainly sympathetic to what the Native Americans were fighting for and were concerned. So if he could be made to see that this is a part of the Native American struggle, then hopefully uh, he would release them. And let me tell you, Leonard's been so, in some of the worst jails in the United States. He was in Lompoc, which you know may be better or worse than Alcatraz, but it's a horrendous place. And he did a lot of time in solitary. And you know, your your readers know a good deal about solitary and the racial mix, both in prisons and in solitary. Uh, to show that it's disproportionately people of color. Blacks form 90% of the groups that winds up in solitary. Leonard's been through all that, and he has survived, and we have furnished uh, President Obama with the details of what he survived. We have furnished President Obama with medical records, which fairly read, which show what you said at the beginning, if he doesn't get out now, he's not getting out. He's going to die in prison.
1: If people want to help win clemency for Leonard Peltier, what can they do?
3: They should write to the White House. They should write to President Obama. There is in the White House a pardon office that would get all these documents. The pardon office works with the Department of Justice. And uh, the aide, top aide to President Obama is Valerie Jarrett. Uh, Those are the two agencies, the Pardon Office, the DOJ, and Valerie Jarrett is the principal. Letters to any of them or to President Obama referencing the clemency application. Now, the clemency application, by the way, is online on The Nation. Uh, I wrote an article, uh, and Lizzie Ratner wrote a wonderful article that's on The Nation website. And that article has the petition for clemency itself.
1: Martin Garbus, read about his petition for clemency for Leonard Peltier at TheNation.com. Thank you, Marty. Thank you very much. Thank you, God. Thank you. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles by Ernesto Orellano with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhoevel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.